good morning, church. Good morning. Appreciate that. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, Merry Christmas. Uh, if we haven't yet had the opportunity to meet, my name is Paul Pretty. I'm the teaching pastor here. Welcome uh, to LifePoint Church. Maybe it's your first time joining us. So grateful uh, that you've chosen uh, to, to be here this morning to sing Jesus' praises, uh, to worship together. Um, so we've been in a series throughout this Christmas season called Love's Pure Light. And really what we've been doing in this series over and over again is seeing the glory, the wonder, the beauty of who Jesus is. That's what the book of Colossians is really about. It's about the identity of Christ. And in this series, we've been in Colossians chapter 1 and will remain to be at least primarily in Colossians chapter 1 today. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open it there. Uh, Before uh, we get into the text, I want to ask us a question to sort of get us started this morning. Uh, Can you recall a time in your life uh, where you realized you were in some serious peril or danger? Maybe a moment in your life where you realized, like, I might not make it out of this. And maybe for some of us, that moment was this past week when you realized that Christmas was Monday. Let's be honest, husbands in the room, when you realized Christmas was Monday and Amazon is no longer a guaranteed next day delivery. Right? I remember last year, I literally had a present being delivered. It said, anticipated delivery by 10 p.m. Christmas Eve. I was sweating it. Let me tell you what, right? And then there was a giant snowstorm, and I don't think it made it. Anyway, uh, bad husband. So um, I, I want to share a moment that I had uh, that, that I really realized, like, oh, I might not make it here. Um, so in college, I attended Ohio Wesleyan University. I studied English and education. And somehow along the way, I had the opportunity Uh, to take a trip with uh, my closest friend in college, one other student we were good friends with, and two professors. And we were going to Ireland uh, to study the connection between literature and culture, something important like that. And so uh, we we were set out on the, and we were supposed to design this course uh, for future students to take. And so anyway, we get to go to Ireland uh, for free, $50,000 a year in tuition. Anyway, so... We get to, to go to this trip, and uh, toward the end of the trip, our professors said, hey, why don't you guys, you, you can head out, you know, uh, have some fun, um, we'll see you in the morning. So we were like, all right. And so we head out, and we go to this fine establishment uh, in the, the heart of downtown you know, Dublin, Ireland, which is the capital of Ireland, and we find this, this great little place, and we walk in, and the first floor of it is just packed. I mean, just people everywhere, but we see there's a balcony um, in this establishment, and the balcony sort of overhangs the first floor. Right? We see a, a chair, a table open, so we go up the stairs, we sit, and, and the railing in that balcony is sort of right here, and, and we order uh, a drink, you know, water, of course, and, um, and so soon after our, our drinks arrived, uh, my buddy accidentally knocked over his drink, and it, and it hit the table, and then some of that liquid um, fell over the edge of the balcony, and onto the lapel of an elderly gentleman. Yeah. And now my immediate reaction was to stand up, to look over the balcony, and begin apologizing profusely. Now when I did that, I, I, I soon realized that, that this elderly man um, had with him his two sons, um, who were you know, in the form of like Dwayne the Rock Johnson and Andre the Giant, and they too were wearing suits. Okay, and, and so immediately my goofy self is looking over the railing saying, sorry, and they see me and their wrath in a moment is directed at me. And so they come charging up the steps. 
I'm still seated at this table. One of the brothers grabs me by the shirt, pulls me to himself, and he says, I'm going to kill you, right? And he's, he's threatening to end my life in all sorts of very creative ways, while the other brother is slamming his fist on the table, screaming, that's my dad, which is sort of funny in hindsight to be screaming. Anyway, now thankfully, the manager of this fine establishment sees what's happening. The manager makes his way up and he pulls off the brother who has me like this, threatening various ways to slip my throat and things. Anyway, and so he pulls off. Before he can get the that's my dad brother, um, the that's my dad brother reaches across and punches me right in the face. And I, of course, I take it like a man. And luckily for him, I didn't stand up. All right? <laughs> so I just got punched in the face in, a, in an establishment in Ireland. Not good. Now, believe it or not, that actually wasn't the moment where I thought my life was in serious peril. That moment came in the next interaction after we are, you know, we're like, what just happened? And my buddy, by the way, he just sat there the whole time. Uh, didn't do a thing. Anyway, so, so soon after this, uh, the manager goes back downstairs, and the old man, the one who initially had the beverage spilled upon his lapel, comes calmly walking up the stairs. And I think, oh, he seems reasonable. And so I stand up and say, sir, so sorry. Can we you know, we'll buy you dinner, whatever you want? I reach out my hand to shake his hand. And instead of taking my hand in a loving embrace, he takes his phone, takes a picture of my goofy grinning face, takes a picture of my friend, and walks away. And that is the moment I realized, this is the Irish mafia, and we're dead. <laughs> Not a situation you want to be in. Now, what in the world does that have to do with Christmas, right? What does getting punched in the face in an Irish establishment have to do with a little baby being born on Christmas Day? Well, I think the Apostle Paul provides some answers to that. And so to get there, we're going to be once again in Colossians 1. I do want to pray for us, so I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into the text and see how this epic story uh, works its way out, being the epic story of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We love you. As we engage in your word, would you open it to us and help us understand? Lord, we can't do this on our own, so send your spirit. Enlighten us. Help us see the glory of Christ and what Christmas really means. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, a little bit of context here. If you're not familiar, the book of Colossians is written to an ancient civilization in the city of Colossae. They're a little church. And in this little church, there are people who are trying to persuade them away from the true doctrines or true beliefs about who Jesus is. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, no, this is Jesus. And the entire book of Colossians really primarily is about the identity and the glory of Christ. And yet, what the Apostle Paul also does is he reminds us, this is also true of you. And of me, of all of us. Yes, this is written to a church 2,000 years ago, but that, by, by extension, is true of us as well. And so this is what he says in verses 13 and 14. This is what he says that's true of us if we have a saving faith in Jesus. This is awesome. He says this, He has delivered us from the, dominion of, excuse me, the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Church, that's really good news if we're found in Christ. We've been delivered from the dominion of darkness. Right? We have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. And then what we saw last week in verses 15 through 20, he then essentially 
says, well, how can that be? And he goes about giving this wonderful description of the identity of Christ, that, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, which means Jesus is God. The fullness of God, in verse 19, was pleased to dwell in Christ. What we also see is that in verse 16, Jesus, it says, through whom all things were created and for whom all things were created. And so what we saw is that Jesus spoke everything into existence and holds the universe together and you and me together by his power, stunning. And then it says, essentially, that he saves us, he reconciles us. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And now what's going to happen as we get into our text today, which really picks up in verse 21, is that now that we know what is true of us in Christ, now that we know who Jesus is, Paul is going to remind us, this is who you were, this is who I am apart from Jesus. Okay? This is the reminder that he gives us on this wonderful Christmas day, verse 21, Christmas Eve day, I should say. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That took a turn. What happened to all the good stuff, right? What happened to rescued? He said, you know, you, me, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. These are the three descriptors the Apostle Paul uses to describe every single one of us prior to having a personal relationship with Jesus, of me, of you. And I want to dig into that a little bit. What do these things mean and are they true? Vitally important questions. So what does it mean to be alienated? Well, typically there's a couple of different ways that we can think about alienation. We can think of it from a sort of social aspect and social psychology. Alienation refers to a state of, of sort of self-separation or a being cut off or excluded from community and from fellowship with others. Right, that's how maybe social psychologists would describe a state of being alienated or alienation. In biblical theology, though, alienation or the state of being alienated from God, namely, is a condition where your sins have cut you off and separated you from the presence and from the person and from relationship with God. Isaiah, the prophet, actually says it very beautifully uh, in Isaiah 59, verse 2, beautifully and painfully, but your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying, is that sin has alienated you, has separated you from God. Sin alienates us from God. We are cut off. Now, here's the thing also about alienation. Alienation brings with it a sort of connotation or, or a hint of familiarity. Some of us, we know very personally what it is to be alienated from friends, from family members. Maybe that's by your own choice. Maybe it's by a mistake that you've made, or maybe it's not by your own choice or mistake you've made. But people have cut you out of their lives, and it stings. Alienation brings with it this awareness of what was, and therefore magnifies the pain of what currently is when we are cut off, when we're separated from our loved ones. Biblically speaking, we say this all the time, you and me, we were created in the image of God. As Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, that God has placed eternity in each of our hearts. What that means in all of us is a longing for God, a desire to be in unity with God because we were created in his image. And so all of us have this longing for eternity. A longing for God. And so when we're alienated, it hurts. We don't often 
can't diagnose it. But what the Apostle Paul is saying here in Colossians is, you need reconciled back to God. That's your problem. So number one, we are alienated on our own apart from Christ. Number two, it says we are hostile in mind. It's a very aggressive term, isn't it? Hostile in mind. Like, what does that mean? Well, I think of Romans chapter 8, another letter from the Apostle Paul. In verse 7, he begins this. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So it seems to be this connection here between what our minds think about, what we're connected to, and somehow if our minds are set on things of the flesh, we are therefore then hostile to the things of God. If our minds are focused only on earthly things, we will be hostile and reject heavenly things. Now what what exactly does that mean? How does that play out? Well, there seems to again be this connection in a hostile mind of a mind that is obsessed with the flesh. Now, there's some low-hanging fruit that I think we could talk about in the sense of, oh, of course, that's what it means to have a mind, excuse me, focused on the flesh. I think, of course, of of different forms of sexual immorality. That is a mind focused on the flesh, right? And and focused on gratification, oftentimes a self-gratification. And I can say that because I've been there, right? I know that struggle. I know that pain and what that brings in the warped way it works, And so he says, look, a mind set on the flesh is a mind oftentimes set on those things. I think a mind set on the flesh is oftentimes willing to harm others physically, mentally, emotionally in order to get what we want from them. So for example, very simply, my three-year-old and my five-year-old, one of them has a toy, the other one wants that toy. To get that toy, what do they do? Kick, punch, yell, smack, steal, whatever they have to do, they disregard the well-being of their little brother or their older brother to gratify the desire of the flesh for this thing without regard to how that impacts and affects the other one, right? Those are very, I think, basic, yes, that makes sense, logical explanations to what is a mind hostile to God and mindset on the flesh. But here's the thing. I think a mindset on the flesh also manifests itself or outworks itself a little bit differently than we might think. I think of a passage in the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew uh, chapter 16. We have an interaction between the Apostle Peter and Jesus. I'll tell you what, oftentimes when I'm reading about the Apostle Peter, I am greatly encouraged because Peter does goofy things that he should not do. And I'm like, my man, I would do the same thing. I too uh, would do goofy things. Okay, anyway, so this is the interaction. Um, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it says this, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die. It's going to happen. Verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, he being Jesus, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's a bad day at the office. Jesus calls you Satan. I mean, but I would do that. I would totally, wait wait a minute, no, this this is not what we want here, Jesus. Why? Because my focus is on the immediate temporal satisfaction of the moment, avoidance of pain. Therefore, I will reject the authority and the plan of God. 
See, a mind set on the flesh chooses to prioritize its immediate well-being to a degree that it is willing to dis- disobey, disregard, and reject the command or will of God. So what that means is when we read the scriptures and God gives us very, very clear instructions, love your neighbor as yourself, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Somebody correct me on that one, right? All of these things that God commands us to do. And when we say, no, I'd rather not share the gospel because I'm afraid it will make things awkward. No, I would rather not put to death what is sinful within me. What we are doing is we are satisfying, setting our minds on the flesh, rejecting the commands of God. Guilty. That is true of us without Christ, And far too often in my own life, it is true of me, even with Christ. I prioritize comfort. I prioritize safety. I prioritize what is easiest in the moment, rather than living in radical obedience and faith to the commands of God. Good news of the gospel is that God does not reject me, even in my disobedience. But he says, come here, son. Come here, daughter. Let me shape you and change you. So again, what is true of us apart from Jesus? So I think we went through two of these so far. We are alienated, hostile in mind, mind set on things of the flesh. And then it says we are doing evil deeds. Again, verse 21, Colossians chapter 1. I think naturally, of course, if our minds are set on the flesh, then the natural sort of outcome of that is that we're going to be doing evil deeds. It just sort of makes sense. And yet as I say that, I think it's, it's offensive. Because you might say, how, wait, who are you to call me evil? Guy up on a stage? Here's the thing. I'm just, I'm evil too. But who, who am I to say this about us? Who, who is the scripture to say this about this? Because I think sometimes when we hear, hey, you're evil, what we say is, no, 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 no. Actually, you're judging Therefore, you are evil. I love my spouse. I love my family. Um, I pay my taxes. I usually work when I'm at work most of the time. Um, You know, like I do all of these things. I'm a good person. You, therefore, then can't call me evil. The problem with this is that typically we define our morality or our definition of what is good or right based upon a comparison of those who are around us. We say, well, I'm not as bad as that person. Well, I never did that. I never said that. I didn't break that many laws. So I'm okay. I I obey the general flow of culture. The problem with this way of grading ourselves is that God's standard for morality, righteousness, and goodness is not based upon the social structure we exist within, nor is God's definition of goodness or righteousness based upon the government laws that are set before us. God's standard of goodness and righteousness is set upon his holy, perfect standard. We can't judge ourselves based off of everybody else. We have to judge ourselves against the holy standard of God. And here's the really bad news. We all fall short, chief sinner included. And if you don't believe me, let's just go, let's just practice this just real quick. I, we'll just, just do a little thing here. Uh, you may have heard of the Ten Commandments before. I'm just going to read uh, some of them here and we'll go through them. Uh, commandment number one. And again, we're just trying, am I an evil person? Commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Has anyone in the room made work, family, children, or spouse 
your God that you worship. Thank you for the honesty. More than the first service. You guys are pretty, pretty honest. It's good. You shall not make idols. Essentially, you should, should not create an image to worship. Has anybody ever essentially had, again, their life revolve around a created thing so much so that it becomes your God? Guilty. Personally. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Oftentimes when we hear this, we just think, don't cuss and say God's name in the cuss word. But I I think, yes, don't do that. But I think there's much more to this commandment than just don't cuss. I think the commandment brings an implication with it about taking God's name. For example, when you are married, traditionally, not always the case, in our culture, the spouse takes the name of the husband, and therefore then you sort of have this new family that you live up to honor. Or when you're growing up as a kid, how many of your parents say, pretties, don't do that? Maybe just me, right? No, we, we, this fa- my last name is pretty, just to be clear. It's spelled differently, but if you don't know me, that's confusing. Um, right? We, we, you say you're dishonoring your family name. You're taking your name in vain to a degree that you are not honoring your family. So what is taking the Lord's name in vain? It's saying, I am a follower of God, I love God, I am all in, and then directly rebelling against him. Anybody done that? Thank you. Same. I'm three for three, by the way, in terms of being a bad person. (laughs) Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Has anybody worked to a degree that you work yourself into anxiety because you don't trust God to provide for you? I'm now four for four. Honor your father and your mother. Anybody disobeyed your your parents? I'm five for five. I could keep going, but you get to the point. You shall not murder. Jesus says if you hate someone and say raka to them, essentially you're you're murdering them. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus says if you lust in your heart, you're committing adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not cover. Guilty, 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 and guilty. Personally. And so when Paul says you're doing evil deeds... He's right. All of us, according to Romans chapter 3, have fallen short of the glory of God, which is the holy, perfect, righteous standard of God. All of us have sinned. Therefore, all of us are guilty before a holy God. And that's really bad news. It's really bad news. And I was in that establishment in Ireland after I got punched in the face and they got thrown out of there. And after they took my picture and I realized that my goofy face was likely going to be pinned upon a cork board in a dingy old garage and a fleet of angry Irishmen were going to kill me, I realized I'm in desperate need of rescue here. Like, I, I seriously need help. Now, the, the manager of that establishment had been sort of looking up and down so after the, the old man walks away, I called him back up and I said, hey. And previously he had said, oh, don't worry about it, you know, you clowns. But this time I said, hey, the old man, he took our picture. And when I told him that, he got really, really serious, which made me realize I, I'm actually in real danger. Like I remember thinking, like, I may die tonight. And it was like midnight and rainy, just classic murder weather, you know. <laughs> I mean, just classic. Just classic. And so... I remember thinking, like, I, I, I need help. So I called the manager. I said, hey, this is happening. He goes, oh, we're going to get you out of here. And so he came up with a plan. 
And his plan was, he says, I'm going to throw these guys out into the alley. There was two entrances. There's an alley entrance and a main street entrance. And I'm going to get my staff, and we're going to create a barricade. This is how serious this was. This man is, is creating a plan to rescue my life. I'm going to create a barricade. When I give you a, a signal, run. Okay. And so he gets everything set. These guys who want to kill me and my friend um, are out in the alleyway. And he, you know, we're watching, okay, where's the signal? And he gives like baseball, you know, ear indicator. And he gives us the signal and we run. And we get out of the establishment and we run the opposite direction. We get a, a cab. We're rescued. We're safe. What in the world does that have to do with Christmas? You see, me realizing the serious peril of my physical situation made me come to an awareness and a mental acknowledgement that I was in need of a rescue. And here's the thing about Christmas. When we realize the peril of our spiritual situation, that we are hostile against God, we're doing evil deeds, we are alienated from God, when we realize the seriousness of our spiritual condition, we will realize our need for a spiritual Savior. Amen? This Christmas, the reality is all of us are in need of a spiritual Savior, and so many of us in this room have tasted that and experienced that. Praise God, and yet I know that there may be some in this room who have not yet, and currently your condition is one of serious peril, and you are in desperate need of a Savior. Christmas. Christmas is the moment that God says, go, go on the rescue mission and the rescue plan that we could be saved through Christ. And now what's the form of that? How does that happen? Brad said earlier, and I loved how he said it, God could have sent just legions of angels and just rescued us, but he, he chose not to do it that way. Why? I think we get an answer of why Jesus had to be born in the way that he was born. Colossians 1.22 says this, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and, and above reproach before him. It sounds like we're picking up midway through because we are essentially here. What we need to see, right? He has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. Again, what does that mean? Well, in the context here, you zoom out a little bit. What he's saying is, all you who are alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you, through faith in Christ, have been reconciled and brought to God. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. Now, the question still remains, why did he have to be born as a squishy little baby with bones and flesh and blood? Why not just send again this mighty warrior king just to wipe out everybody and ransom his people why send a wee little baby? Why? I think we get the answer for that when we look back at the Old Testament and we allow the Bible to teach us. When you look through the Old Testament, what you see is that when man sinned, human beings, when we sinned, when we rebelled against God and said, my way instead of your way, God, we were cut off, we were separated, we were alienated, all the things that we've said. And what God did is he made a way for us to be reconciled to him through something called the sacrificial system. Sacrificial system throughout the Old Testament is the process by which someone would sin, then kill something, and then be restored and forgiven for their sins. And I want to direct us to Leviticus, our favorite Bible, book in the Bible, I know. 
Um, when you're bored later today, you can read the whole thing. Um, Leviticus chapter 4. Uh, this whole chapter goes through just what do you do when you have personally sinned. And there's all sorts of different offerings. I just want to, to read to us a common person what happens when you sin. Verse 20 says, and it says, If anyone of the common people sins unintentionally, in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and realizing his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, here's what he should do. He shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt, excuse me, in place of the burnt offering. Okay? So that's the process. It says previously in that chapter, if a leader sins, they should bring a male goat without blemish, place their hand, slaughter. If the high priest sins, it says early in the chapter, it's a bull that time. The point is, I think three things. Number one, you see this individual necessity for making payment for the sins that you've committed. Yes, there were times when there would be sacrifices made for all the people of Israel, but this, in this instance, it's, no, you, you sinned, you did this, what you need to do is you then go find a, an animal without blemish. What that means, a perfect, right, beautiful animal. And what you then need to do is you need to take that beautiful, perfect animal, wrangle it however you do with goats that are probably not wanting that to happen to them, and imagine the, the, how the, the, the practicality of this. You sinned, and you're like, dang it. And then you, you, you're like, ah, it's my best goat. Again, I know this, I'm not trying to make this funny. It's just like the, the reality of the situation. You get your best goat, and you probably have to like, bind its legs, and then you throw it in your cart, and you're walking toward the temple, and there are goats being slaughtered everywhere, sheep being slaughtered everywhere, and your goat probably starts to freak out a little bit. And so you're wrangling this thing, and then you bring it to the priest, and you confess your sin, and then what do you do? You place your hand on the head of that beautiful, perfect goat, and you say, I sinned, so you die, and you look it in the eye, and you slit its throat. Gruesome. But that's how sins were atoned for, paid for. Blood spilled. God recognizes the blood and says, You, I forgive you. And so on Christmas, you get this little baby who's born, again, with flesh, bones, hair, blood. Why? Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 4, it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then in verse 12, it says this, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. What this means, church, is that Christmas is the moment where the perfect, blemishless, wonderful Lamb of God is born into the world and he would live without sin, he would live in perfection so that when he is being nailed to that Roman cross with spikes through his hands and his feet, he would be an acceptable, perfect sacrifice before God. You see, Jesus had to be born so that he could be a perfect sacrifice. And so then when Jesus is on the cross and he's being crucified and he's, 
He's crying out, my God, my God, lama lama sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is I'm taking the wrath of these people's sin upon myself. And Father, you are, you are punishing me for me and for you. And so then, church, in order for us to be reconciled to God, in order for us to no longer have hostile minds set on the things of the flesh, but have transformed minds who no longer are imprisoned to the things of the world, but rather focused on the things of Christ, in order to, to no longer be living in evil deeds, but certainly still making mistakes and still sinning, but receiving forgiveness, what we do, church, instead the way we for, to receive forgiveness for our sins is not physically laying our hand on Jesus' head, but the way we receive forgiveness for our sins is by spiritually placing our faith in his sufficiency. His sufficiency, he is enough to save us. He is enough to cancel your sin debt. He is enough to change the way that you think. He is enough to... to to see your evil deeds that I still do. And I want to flee from them. I want to repent from them. I want to be a person who's chasing after the beauty and the wonder of Christ. But he sees me in my brokenness and he says, I am enough for you. And the father looks at us as sons and as daughters, as co-heirs with Christ. And he says, because of Jesus, because you have placed your hand, spiritually speaking, upon the sufficiency of Christ on the cross, you are forgiven. You are mine and I have a new life for you to live, and I have eternity laid up for you in heaven. That is what Christmas is about. It's not about the stuff. It's not about the things. Great. It's ultimately about the perfect sacrifice, being brought into the world, living perfectly in my place and in your place, and dying, taking the penalty for my sin that I deserve. He took it for you. And so what we need to do this morning is we need to personally recognize that. If you're saved this morning, let this time just be a point of worship to say, praise you, God, thank you, God. If you do not have yet a saving faith in Christ, what I mean by that, if you have not yet personally said, Jesus, I trust you, hang on with me. You are in a terribly dangerous spiritual situation, according to what we just read in the book of Colossians. And I want to beg with you and plead with you, be reconciled, be made right with God by repenting of your sin and saying, Jesus, I trust you. I believe in you. I have faith in you. Would you do that this morning? Be reconciled to God this Christmas. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word that it is so good to teach us about who you are and what you've done for us and how just good you are. Jesus, thank you for being willing to go on to this epic rescue mission to save us, to be born as a baby, to take upon the humility of mankind, but to do it in the fullness of God, to live perfectly, to die brutally and to resurrect triumphantly so that we can have life in you. If you're here this morning and you don't yet have a personal saving faith in Jesus, I'm speaking to you. Heads are bowed right now. Every head bowed in the room. If you 
need to say, Jesus, I believe in you and I trust you to take the penalty of my sin for me, I want you to raise your hand this morning. Say, I need you, Jesus, to take the penalty of my sin. Transform me, make me into a new person. You don't have to, nobody's looking around. You can raise your hand high and say, I need Jesus. God, we praise you for the decisions this morning. We praise you for the work that you're doing this morning. We honor you, we glorify you, we praise your name, Jesus. Thank you, you can put your hands down. God, you know those who are yours this morning. And I ask, Father, keep them as you promised to do. Fill them with your spirit. Help them understand that you have made them into a new creation. They have brothers and sisters in Christ who want to encourage them, not judge them. They have brothers and sisters in Christ who want to walk alongside them, point them to Jesus, and be the family and the people of God. Send your Holy Spirit, Lord. We need you. We love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.